All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. As always, God is good. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new here, I'm so glad you're here. Um, we are um, towards the end of a series. Um, we'll end it next week, uh, which will be Palm Sunday. And we'll end next week and we'll talk about uh, the last feast. We, we've been in this series where we've been looking at the seven feasts of the Lord. Uh, there were seven times God said in Leviticus that he wanted the Jewish people to stop what they were doing and hold that day as holy, seven times throughout the year. And we've been studying those, and today we're on uh, feast number seven. But, but I want to make sure that we're sort of all caught up on this, because um, while the Jewish people celebrate uh, the things God asked them to do, they, in my opinion, don't fully understand the impact and significance of what they're actually celebrating. Because every one of the feasts points to a major event in the life of Jesus, the Messiah. And we've been looking at that. And so if you remember, there were four spring feasts. Uh, it started with the feast of Passover. And at that feast, Jesus was crucified. He was the sacrificial lamb. As they were sacrificing lambs in the temple, he was outside the east gate being, being sacrificed for the sins of the world. He then was buried and was sinless during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, which talks about how there's no sin. And, and he was hidden and taken away like the Afikoman that we talked about in the Passover Seder. And he, on the day of first fruits, that third feast, he resurrects. And he is the first of many Christians, including you and me, who resurrect based on our faith in Christ. And then we move to the Festival of Weeks, which is Pentecost where 50 days after he resurrected, we find the fall of the Holy Spirit on, on the disciples in the temple in Jerusalem. And all four spring feasts were fulfilled in Jesus' first visit to the earth. And then we said, but you know what? There's three more to come. And if we study those three feasts, we may know what's in our future. And so we talked last week about the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah. And it's basically a, a, the first day of the month. Remember, it's the day they didn't know exactly what day it would be. And they would go out and look at the moon and the, the priest would declare this is the first of the month and they blow the trumpet. And everybody would know to start counting because 10 days from that moment, the, feast, or the, the uh, Day of Atonement was coming. And we talked last week about how they had essentially uh, 10 days to examine themselves, 10 days to think about getting right with God, 10 days to um, ask for forgiveness, to examine themselves. If you remember before Passover, they looked in their homes for any form of leaven. This is kind of them looking at themselves, both as individuals and as a people. Is there anything that we need to confess and get atonement for? Because 10 days from now, we're going to hit the highest, most holy day. And that's the feast that we're going to talk about today. It's called the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. And we're going to talk about what that means. Now, atonement is interesting because um, there are two parts to everything we do wrong. Uh, the first part is there's the sin itself. Okay? And often that's the part that we actually can get past. It's the guilt that comes that's so difficult for us to do. In fact, many of us have a lot of guilt over mistakes we've made and we've never been able to forgive ourselves. 
And the reason you haven't been able to do that is nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to forgive yourself. Only God can do that. Only God can change you. Only God can relieve you of your guilt. And we're going to talk about that today. Now, I know a lot about guilt and I know a lot about punishment uh, because I spent a lot of time growing up in the principal's office. (laughs) Those who know me know that is absolutely true. Um, Yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, because I I would get bored and then I would do things and the teacher didn't like it and so I would go to the principal's office. And that was back in the days when you got licks, if you know what that means. Um, And uh, yeah, so Uh, I'll tell you that once you get those, you realize that they're really not so bad after all because the person doing it actually feels more guilty than you do. Uh, But what happened in the principal's office, I would try to do my best to cover up or rationalize whatever I'd done wrong, which of course was impossible because there were many witnesses who would be happy to tell them what really happened up. But I didn't really necessarily deny it. I just wanted to improve my situation a little bit, you know, make it less bad than it was, and maybe somehow make up for it before the principal got the paddle out. But no matter how hard I tried to cover what I've done, it was still there. I couldn't cover it up. In many ways, the visit to the principal's office was a foreshadowing of the real event that was going to occur. Nothing that happened in the principal's office was any close to what happened when I got home. Nothing. This was just a foreshadowing, a a previous picture, an awareness that tonight's not going to be a good night. The real event when I got home was I had to atone for my sin with my dad. That was the real show. That's where it really happened. I couldn't undo my mistake. I couldn't undo my sin. So the best I could do was try to cover it up. Not to deny it, but just to kind of offset it in a little way. Help my dad understand a little bit more. And no matter how hard I tried to cover it up, it was still there. In many ways, uh, that real event when I went home, my parents, um, I couldn't undo it and I couldn't make it go away. That's when I learned there are two parts to your mistakes, to your sins. There's the sin itself. And then there's the punishment and the guilt. The punishment was over quickly. The guilt can last forever. For many of us, guilt has lasted our entire lifetime. Now, here's the thing, is I used to feel horrible guilt. Now, my dad almost never uh, did anything other than talk to me. And he would say something that to this day makes me cringe. Frank, I'm not angry. I'm just really disappointed. I I didn't think this is what you would choose to do. I, I, I thought I knew you. And so the guilt trip would begin. And there was nothing worse to me than disappointing my dad. To this day, I still feel bad about the times in my life when I disappointed him. It was just a foreshadowing of the way I feel when I disappoint God. Now, I'm going to be willing to guess that I'm not alone here. For many of us, the guilt of our past, maybe the guilt of what we did yesterday, preoccupies our thoughts. We've rationalized, we've tried to cover up what we've done. 
Perhaps the immediate punishment was over long ago. Perhaps the people that you feel guilty about have been long gone. But the guilt of that moment continues to hang, continues to punish your psyche. It continues to make you think about the mistakes you've made. And Satan loves to revamp and replay all of our sins. If that's you, I'm glad you're here. Because you're in good company. You're around it. Look next to you. The person next to you is messed up too. You see, God knew there were two parts to sin, the punishment that had to be dealt and the guilt. And unless you deal with both, that sin doesn't ever free you. You never become free of your sin. Jesus actually came so you and I could be free both of the punishment of sin and the guilt of our sin. The problem is we haven't let go of the guilt. The day of atonement is a reminder to us that we can be free not only of our sin and the punishment, but also the guilt. Last week we learned about the Feast of Trumpets, the shofar announcing the first day of the seventh month, a warning to everybody, particularly the Jewish people, that the holiest day of the year was only 10 days away. The Jewish people believe that on that day, God's court is in session. That the first 10 days of the month, they call them the days of awe. They believe that the book of life is open and God is reviewing the names. If they're not right with God, if their name is not in the book of life, or if they've done something that they haven't atoned for, their name could be taken out of the book of life. And they believe they have 10 days to make things right. Rather than depending on animal sacrifices, today they depend on charitable acts and acts of service. Those 10 days are serious days of self-reflection, both as individuals and corporately as a people. They're to examine themselves. They're to quit lying to themselves. They're to admit their mistakes. They're to confess them. And then on the 10th day of Tishri, which is the seventh month, the day of atonement, the holiest day of the year begins. It's a day when the book of life will be sealed for another year. The day once each year when the high priest went to meet God. The only day of the year where anybody was announced to actually say the name of God. The day when the high priest carrying the blood of an innocent sacrificial animal steps through the curtain, the holiest place, and uses the blood to cover the sins of the Jewish nation and the sins of himself and the other priests. Each year, the high priest would cover the sins, but it would only last for a moment. As soon as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, and just to remind you, the Holy of Holies was in the very center part of the temple. It's where God says, this is where I live. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was only allowed to be entered by this one person one day a year, and only for the purpose of uh, going through the ceremony of atoning for sin. Now here's an important thing I want us to all understand. Atonement means to cover up. Atonement doesn't mean to get rid of. Atonement is simply covering up something. Okay? So each year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the prescribed blood of the various animals. We're going to talk about in a minute what he would actually do. And that would atone or cover up the sins of the Jewish nation for the last year. And as soon as he walked out, as soon as one person sinned, it started all over again. Okay, the atonement was simply a temporary covering, an appeasement for God. 
Thousands of animals would be destroyed in the next year to keep trying to cover the sins of the people. The Day of Atonement. Let's read about it in Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses. Remember, this is up on the mountain. On the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation. That means you all come together. And you shall afflict yourselves and bring a food offering to the Lord. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. And you shall not do any work on that day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. You shall afflict yourself, repeated in this passage. To afflict oneself generally in Scripture means to fast, to avoid food, to not eat. Okay? So you're to afflict yourself, you're, you're to not eat, and then you're to come bring a food offering. It's not just abstaining from food, it's the attitude and heart that surrenders during a fast. When we fast, it's not our attitude, it's our heart that God is watching. No work, solemn rest on this day. This is the holiest day of the year. A holy convocation, a holy gathering, and it's a dress rehearsal for the final day of atonement that will happen when Jesus returns. Every feast is a precursor, a dress rehearsal for the real event. They shed uh, the lamb's blood on Passover every year for 2,000 years until the real event when Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed. The feasts coming up are also foreshadowings. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Kippur means, guess what? To cover. Okay, so this is a day of covering your sins. The word atonement means to cover. Yom Kippur is a appointed time set aside by God where the Jewish nation atoned and covered the previous year's sins. God has always demanded that only blood can cover sin. We just sang precious blood of Jesus. Only blood can cover sin. We're going to learn there's a big difference between what the blood of Jesus did and what the blood of these animals do, but we'll get there in a minute. Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Okay, now think about that for a minute. This is pre-microbiology, pre-hematology, pre-any kind of ology, and God goes ahead and tells us, oh, by the way, your life is in your blood. He could have drawn out the oxygen pathway. He could have drawn out all the different various things, but he just, your life is in your blood. Blood is important. It carries life. No blood, no life. Lose the substance of blood, you lose life. I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, every time they would atone for their sins, an innocent animal would be sacrificed and died. That animal essentially took the place, their punishment in their place, and then they could use the blood of that killed animal to put it on the altar and offer that to God to cover their sins. Okay? Every time you sin, every time a Jewish person would sin, there would need to be a covering of some sort. If you didn't cover your sins, if you didn't confess, if you didn't cleanse yourself, if you didn't go to God and, and confess your sins, you would begin to spiral away from God. Leviticus 23:26. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. Okay? If you don't fast, you're going to be cut off. Why? Because you're not serious about this day. 
And whoever does any work on that day, that person I will destroy from among his people. Now that word destroy is difficult because in the Greek it could also mean I will remove. Okay, so it could mean destroy. It could mean he'll remove them from the people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Okay? Remember the Jewish people, their day begins at sunset. Okay, so the ninth day of the month at sunset is when it begins. Key part of this day, fasting and Sabbath, both denying yourself. Deny yourself and your desires. No food, no work, just a day of solemn rest. Sabbath with a purpose. In fact, they call this day the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. The one time a year, a holy day appointed by God for a specific purpose. To deal with sins individually as a nation. A holy convocation. A holy gathering with the expectation a statute for all times and all places. The attention of the nation of Israel turned to the temple. On the 10th day of Tishri, the seventh month, everybody was at the temple. And all the focus was on the Holy of Holies and the high priest. The high priest, he, he gets isolated seven days before Yom Kippur. Okay, so the trumpet blows. Three days later, the priest, the high priest, goes into isolation. At the same time, the next person in line does the same. Because if something happens to the high priest, if he turns out not to be worthy, if something happens during those seven days, they got to have a backup. Because on day 10, somebody's got to go in there and atone for the sin. Okay? Now, they isolate him because they don't want there to be any chance of him becoming ceremonially unclean. During that week, he practices over and over every aspect of his duties. Because if he fails, he'll probably drop dead. If he does anything to desecrate the altar, if he does anything that is not what God asked him to do or told him to do, he will likely not come out of the Holy of Holies. In fact, they tied a chain around his ankle so that if he dropped dead, they could pull him out without having to go in. He would learn and practice how to sprinkle the blood with his thumb and his forefinger and burning incense and lighting the menorah, practicing his movements, making sure nothing went wrong. Any mistake would be a monumental catastrophe and represent humiliation, not just for him, but for the entire nation. Their sacrifices would be disqualified. Their sin would remain uncovered. Their names would not be in the book for the next year. The high priest wore a majestic purple robe. It's hemmed in golden bells so people could hear him work in the Holy of Holies. If there's a loud thud and the bells don't make any noise, it's time to grab the chain. He wore a golden breastplate with 12 precious stones, one for each tribe of Israel. This day was about the shedding of blood. Just like at trumpets, they blew the trumpets that day over a hundred times. On this day, additional animal sacrifices were made. The message of this day is something is going to pay for your sins. Something is going to. It's innocent blood, but it's going to cover your sins. Following the morning service, the high priest would change into white linen garments. These garments are considered holy. 
They are worn only on this day and never again. Five times during the day, he meticulously follows the same cleansing ceremony, washed his hands and his feet, removed his garments, totally immersed his body, put on a new set of garments, washed his hands and feet a second time. Okay, if you want to know what it took for the priest to enter the Holy of Holies, go out to the uh, FB, uh, Frank Bible Truth YouTube and look at the temple series. And we talk about what it takes to approach the Holy of Holies. This high priest uh, during the holiest day would enter the Holy of Holies several times. He would take five ceremonial cleansing baths. Everything had to be done perfectly. Then the afternoon service, this is the main event, was when the high priest atoned for the sins of the nation. First, the high priest laid both hands on the head of a young bull. The bull represented the sins of the priests. So before the priest could actually atone for the sins of the people, his own sins were important that they were atoned for first. He and all the priests, okay? That means priests never admitted being perfect because they weren't, unlike today sometimes. So they atoned for their own sins. The bull represented the sins of the priests. First, the high priest would place his hands on the head of the bull, a sign of identifying with it as his substitute. With both hands on the innocent bull, he then confessed his personal sins and in doing so, used the covenant name of God, Yahweh, three times. The only time throughout the entire year a human was allowed to say the name of God. Three times in the Holy of Holies as he's sacrificing for his own sins. Under Jewish law, that name could not be spoken out loud by anyone else at any other time. Only the high priest, only on the holiest day, only in the Holy of Holies, and each time he said it, the priests would fall on their faces in worship and retreat from the inner sanctum. Blessed be his name who glorious kingdom is forever and ever, they would say. The name of God carried the utmost reverence. The high priest went to the eastern side of the altar Two goats stood there side by side. They were identical in size, color, and value. Two golden stones or lots were placed in a cup or a vessel. One was labeled Yahweh, meaning God. The other was for Azazel, meaning escape. Also called the scapegoat. The high priest shook the vessel, randomly took one stone in each hand. The goats were considered together to be a sacrifice. The one whose lot was Yahweh would be slaughtered as a sin offering. He would pay the price for the sins of the people. His blood would cover the sin. He represents punishment. Somebody has to take the punishment for the sins. The first goat, the one named Yahweh, God's goat, takes the punishment. This grape goat was identified with a crimson strip of wool tied to his horns. The goat would be led out into the wilderness, taken outside the city through the eastern gate. This goat was sent out to carry away the guilt of sin. One goat for punishment, one goat for guilt. The punishment goat will die, blood will be sacrificed for forgiveness. The guilt goat will wander into the wilderness, carrying the guilt away from the people. That's the symbolism. 
So once each year the sins of the nation were paid for in goat blood or in blood, the guilt of those were released into the wilderness. The high priest returned to the bull a second time, placed his hands on the head and confessed the sins of the other priests, and then he slaughtered the bull and collected his blood. His first trip into the Holy of Holies. From this point previously, he's been out by the altar, the brazen altar that's out by the entrance. Now he enters into the, the inner sanctum and then enters into the Holy of Holies. Remember the Holy of Holies is that area there where there's the Ark of the Covenant, the seraphim, their wings covering it. There's a big curtain right there that's really thick and no one ever went behind the curtain because that's where God lived. Remember, that's the same curtain that gets torn when Jesus is crucified. Okay, so they bring hot coals in and they fill the room with incense. And then he exited the Holy of Holies. He returns with the blood of the bull and then he carefully sprinkled the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so he's gone out, he's got the blood of the bull. This is all about his sins and the priest's sins. He goes into the Holy of Holies and he begins to sprinkle blood, atoning for the sin, his sins and the sins of the priest. Then he goes out and slaughters the goat, the one that represents the guilt and punishment of the sins of the people. So he goes out and he slaughters the goat, and he, then he enters the Holy of Holies a third time, sprinkles the blood of the goat in the same manner, atoning for the sins of the people and the nation of Israel. He exits, he sprinkles the blood of the bull on, on a curtain and repeated it with the blood of the goat. Okay, so he's putting blood on the ark, he turns around, puts blood on the curtain. Finally, he mixes the blood of the goat and the bull together and he sprinkled the horns of the altar out in the courtyard. So outside the Holy of Holies, out in the courtyard, there's a big altar. He put the blood, both of their blood, the bull and the, sheep, and the uh, goat, he sprinkles on the altar. Then he turns to the scapegoat. The high priest laid his hands on the head and confessed the sins of the people. The scapegoat was led through the eastern gate by a priest, taken more than 10 miles away and then released into the wilderness. Then the high priest entered the Holy of Holies a final time to remove the ladle and the fire pan. He bathed the fifth time, put on his priestly robe, and then led the final service, closing out the holiest day. Every year for thousands of years, this ritual was followed without variation. But it was a dress rehearsal for a day that would come, a day that is on our calendar in the future. A day in the future spoken of by the prophet Daniel in what's known as his 70 weeks prophecy that we covered just recently. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for the iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Daniel, who lived 1,500 or more years before Jesus, begins to talk about 70 weeks, 70 sevens, 490 days. The problem is that last week is different than the others, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what he's saying is there's a time that God's going to spend. There's going to be a time to finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal the vision and the prophet. In other words, to make everything come true. 
and to anoint a most holy place. Not the holy of holies, a most holy place. These prophetic weeks measured seven years in length instead of seven days. Daniel said there would be 69 weeks between. We're not going to get lost in this. Uh, I can point you to places where we've gone through this in detail. The decree to restore the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. So what Daniel said was there's going to be a decree. At some point, the Babylonian king or the Persian king is going to give out a decree and tell us to go build the wall back in Jerusalem and build the temple again. From that very day, a very specific day, you can start counting. Okay? And you just add them up, and that'll be the day the Messiah will be cut off. Okay, so if you know the first day, you should know what day Jesus shows up to be crucified. Guess what day Jesus showed up to be crucified? The very day Daniel said he would be there. That's why they were looking for him. That's why they expected him on that day. That's why they were lining the streets with palm leaves. He was expected to show up in the temple that day. He was the Lamb of God being presented to the temple of God as a holy sacrifice being presented for examination and then four days later would be crucified. Sure enough, King Artaxerxes made the order to rebuild the temple in the 5th century B.C. 69 times 7 years, 483 years later, Jesus walks into the temple and says, I'm the Lamb of God. But Daniel's 70th week is different. Daniel predicted that after the Messiah's execution, there would be an unspecified gap of time before the clock starts ticking again for the next seven years. So what Daniel said is 69, the Messiah will be cut off. Then there's a period of time, we don't know how long, but once that period of time ends, there'll be seven more years and then the end. The 70th week will be over. That time, the pause between Messiah being killed and the start of those seven years is what we call the age of the Gentiles. It's what we call the time in between the spring and fall feasts. We are living right now in that week, the 70th week, the last week. When will that week end? When God says so. How will it end? I believe it will end on the Feast of Trumpets when the trumpet blows. Okay, now here's the thing. During the time, as predicted, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. That happens in 70 A.D. The Gentile period is over with a trumpet shout. And basically, when the Gentile people who profess Jesus disappear from the planet during the rapture, when those things happen, that is the horn blowing a wake-up call to the Jewish people. You've got a short period of time because atonement's coming. Okay, you see how the feasts predict the future? There's going to be a day when the trumpet blows, and I believe we will all be out of here. Those who believe in Christ, have their faith in Christ, we're gone. Remember, I, I hinted at it a couple weeks ago, we will be having our wedding honeymoon with Jesus in the great place while the seven years of tribulation are happening here. Now here's the thing, and don't start going, oh, my head's spinning. We're going to go through this in detail later, like we do with everything. In any event, the, the world is going to cry out and eventually, some of the Jewish people, a Jewish remnant, are going to remember who Jesus was and also confess that he's Messiah. Okay? The Day of Atonement, the, the, the trumpet, the rapture is a warning to Jewish people. Jesus was right. You've got to make a decision. Because very soon, the next feast is coming. 
And at that time, this day of atonement is going to be the final one. Daniel told us that, that seven year, the last seven years would begin when the Antichrist arises in the end of days. How will we know when there's seven days left? One of two things. We'll either not be here, if we've been raptured. Second, Daniel tells us that there'll be a moment when the Antichrist is revealed to the world, and that'll start the seven-year clock. Okay? Now just notice, God didn't want us to be ignorant about what's going to happen. It's all throughout Scripture. It's, it's all throughout the feast. It's everywhere. Daniel said this, To the end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. In other words, the world is going to have a big war because God decreed it, not because he's out of control. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. The prophetic clock starts ticking. When the Antichrist signs a seven-year peace deal with Israel, in that moment, the world will know two things. Somebody is going to bring peace to the Middle East. This war is going to involve Israel. It's going to look like Israel has no chance, and then all of a sudden a hero shows up. Somebody who brings peace. And when he shows up and signs a peace treaty with Israel, you'll know he's the Antichrist. No matter what he says, no matter how he looks, he will present himself like Christ. He will be the Jewish Messiah who brought peace to the Middle East. But he won't be there on that mission. The Jewish people, many of them, will believe he's their Messiah, finally showed up. They'll surrender allegiance to him. Okay? In that moment, you're going to know two things. Who the Antichrist is and when Jesus is coming back. Now, I believe in that moment we won't be here. And I'll go into that in detail, but let me just tell you a couple reasons. One, Jesus promises to come get his bride. He's going away to prepare a room. I believe in I think he's coming back for us. Second is, I'd never leave my bride in a war zone if I didn't have a purpose. The entire end of the world is all about bringing the Jewish people back. The Gentiles have a chance right now. The Jewish people, it's all about the Jewish people. If the Holy Spirit is present on this planet, I don't believe the Antichrist can do what he wants to do. You see, because I believe as soon as he presents himself and signs a deal with Israel, every Christian's going to go, Antichrist. Right? But if we're not here, the world will go, Messiah. Okay, now, the other thing that's important to know is that um, in addition to recognizing him as the Antichrist, uh, the day is going to start ticking. At the end of those seven years, Daniel says this, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both the vision and the prophet and to anoint a most holy place. In other words, to complete the mission of God on earth. So let's talk about the Antichrist. The main thing to remember is that he mimics Christ. He comes to a troubled world and he offers peace. He's preceded by one who tells everybody to worship him, a fake John the Baptist. Okay, so it'll be the Antichrist, but before the Antichrist, there will be somebody, his press secretary, somebody pointing to how great this person is. He'll arise from nowhere and seem to bring world peace. He mimics John the Baptist. He'll do amazing things, the Antichrist, with trickery and magic. He'll receive a serious head wound. Somebody's going to shoot him, I think. 
and he will either staged or real, and he will appear to have miraculously survived. He will set up an earthly kingdom. He'll bring peace to the nation of Israel, peace to the world. He'll set up a one-world government, a one-world monetary system, a one-world everything. He'll remove all the arms from all the nations for three and a half years. He'll rebuild the temple. The Jewish people will say the Messiah is here rebuilding the temple. The temple will be rebuilt. Three and a half years into this, all of a sudden, he's going to declare himself as God. He's going to turn on the Jewish people. He will tell people they have to surrender to him. After three and a half years, everything changes. He will enter the rebuilt temple. He'll declare himself to be God. He'll replace the Holy of Holies with a statue of himself. He'll turn his anger and wrath against the Jewish people who refuse to worship him. Daniel 12, 1, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. What happens during those last three and a half years is nothing that we've ever seen. He will drive the Jewish people into the wilderness and for the last three and a half years, literally hell on earth is going to break out. Now the Jewish people, as this great tribulation comes, once the peace deal is broken, anti-Semitism will reach its zenith like it's never been before. All nations will turn against Israel in an effort to once and for all destroy the Jews. It's Satan's chance. It's his last chance. He's going to throw out everything. At the time of the Great Tribulation, um, God will begin to pour out his wrath on those who defy him. During this time, much like the plagues in Egypt, which was a foreshadowing, God will begin to open bowls on the earth and ask people, do you believe me yet? Do you believe me yet? Basically, the entire last three and a half years is a showdown between God and Satan. God's already won it, but he's forcing everybody on earth to make a very clear decision. You are going to place your uh, allegiance to either the Antichrist or the Christ, and it's going to cost you your life either way, most likely. We're told that 144,000 Jewish people will become evangelists of Jesus. That during this time, 144,000 Jewish evangelists will arise who realize Jesus is the Messiah. They'll share the message of Jesus. They'll begin to prepare the Jewish people for the arrival of Jesus. Revelation 7:2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun and with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Okay, so God is going to say, these 144,000, protect them. They're the first fruit of the Jewish harvest. Remember, Jesus was the first fruit of the Gentile harvest. These are the first fruit of the coming Jewish harvest. The last three feasts are all about the Jewish people and God bringing them back to him. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before our four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. It's probably in Hebrew. 
Um, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Okay, even in the midst of all hell on earth, God has set aside a group of people. People will be forced to choose between the Antichrist and the real Christ. It's tragic that the prophets tell us that two-thirds of the Jewish people will be killed during this terrible time as the nations of the world turn against Israel. They have nowhere to turn facing annihilation and slaughter. They will cry out to God in truth, and many will realize that Jesus was the Messiah. At that point, Jesus will make his long-awaited second return to earth to rescue the Jewish people. Jesus fulfilling his own prophecy. Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jerusalem, my people, I came to save you. You rejected me. We're going into a time of Gentiles. There'll be a day when we turn back to you. Some of you will recognize that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm coming back for you. All the armies of the world will turn against Israel. They'll assemble in the valley of Megiddo, which is called Armageddon. Revelation 16, 14. For there are demonic spirits performing signs who go about to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of the God Almighty. And they assembled them at a place which is in Hebrew called Armageddon. So the final showdown, you can go to Megiddo now. You look out, it's a huge battlefield. When Patton was there, he said it was the best large battlefield of the entire world. He said you could just imagine armies fighting each other in this valley, and you can. At this point, Jesus returns for the second time. Remember, at the rapture, he doesn't return to earth. He calls us to him. He returns for the second time. His second coming, the great day of the Lord that everyone talks about. The day when he finally will put an end to the opposition. A day when he alone, not his army, he defeats all the armies of Satan. Rescues the nation of Israel. Saves the Jewish remnant. Two-thirds of the people will perish during this time, but one-third will be redeemed by Christ. They will see Jesus for who he truly is, the true Messiah. Daniel 12, 1, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Zechariah 12, 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. A third of the Jewish people are going to remember their mistake. They're going to remember that Jesus was the Messiah. They're going to weep because they realize now the truth. In that moment, the day of atonement will be fulfilled by Jesus literally. They will have atoned for all the sins of the world. Those who 
uh, rejected him are going to be standing on their own against the wrath of God. Those who accepted him have had their sins atoned for. It's not that their sins were covered by Jesus. They will be remembered no more. They'll be completely wiped out. Scripture over and over, Jesus doesn't cover sin. He cleanses us of sin. There's a difference. Okay? You see, the blood of Jesus doesn't cover anybody's sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Doesn't cover it. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He doesn't cover our sins, he removes our sins. Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So at the end of the seventh week, the final seven years are over. The Jewish nation comes face to face with their Messiah. They accept the gift of Jesus for salvation. And on that day, a day in our future, the day of atonement will have been fulfilled prophetically. That's our future. The holiest one, Jesus, will go to the holiest place. The throne of the Father in heaven. He'll offer the holiest sacrifice, which is his own blood, to restore God's holy people, the nation of Israel. That day in our future, the nation of Israel will return to Jesus. Yom Kippur, it's a day yet to occur in the future, an appointed time for God to restore the relationship with his people. On that day, I will be their God, and finally, they will be my people. These seven feasts paint a prophetic picture of Jesus. Each one a piece of the puzzle, each one coming together. Now the fall feasts reveal our future. Each feast leading up to the next, the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, the rapture, the end of the Gentile period, a warning to the world that judgment is coming. Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the, the repentance of the Jewish nation, their return to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah to save the Jewish remnant. So how do we apply this? I mean, okay, that's great information. What do we do with it? What does Yom Kippur teach Christ followers? The Day of Atonement, how should we approach this day? The first thing we should do is remember the day. Remember, there's a day every year that is the holiest day on the calendar, and we should hold it in high esteem. God said this day is the holiest day for all generations, for all Jewish people. It is a solemn Sabbath. It is a day of fasting, a day to surrender, to allow God to review your life, your year, to confess your sins as individuals and a nation. Second Chronicles 2.7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their lamb, land. Second thing we should do. This should be a day where we remember the Jewish people. We need to pray and share the gospel with our Jewish friends. 
The wrath of the Antichrist is going to be targeted against them. They are going to be at ground zero. This war is not about anything other than God's people in Israel. Whatever war it is, the biggest end war, whether it's starting now or comes later, it will all be about attacking the Jewish people. They'll try to convince some of the Jewish people that God has given up on them and he only cares about the Gentiles. And sadly, Gentiles will tell them that. The most blatant form of anti-Semitism is in the church today. We need to speak out against those who teach replacement theology, which is about 70% of the churches in America. The Jewish people killed Jesus. God took their promise, gave it to us. They should be cursed. Started well before Martin Luther. It's active in the church today. You see it in the press today. The idea that God somehow has given up on the Jewish people, that he only cares about the Gentiles, it is the most blatant form of anti-Semitism in our nation today. Because people who should be praying for and trying to save the Jewish people are condemning them. Every year at Yom Kippur, we need to remind ourselves to share the gospel. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will go ahead of us, and we need to talk to our Jewish friends about Jesus. And we need to remember that Yom Kippur is not just about individuals, it's about the nation as a whole. We need to pray for the nation of Israel. We need to pray for Jewish people worldwide as they're examining themselves and their sins. That God intended so much more than to just cover their sins. Pray that God will reveal to them that the final sacrifice, the blood of Jesus, doesn't cover sin, it cleanses it. See, as long as you believe that your sins are just temporarily covered, you'll always live with guilt. I have a friend of mine, he always says, you can't do guilt on me, I'm not Jewish and I'm not Catholic. Ooh, did I say that? I said that out loud. That was him, joke, all right? But the reality is God never uses guilt after we've asked for forgiveness of our sin. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. Isaiah said, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're like crimson, they shall be like wool. Third thing I want us to do, remember the goats. As a child sitting outside the principal's office, I knew the punishment would be swift and over. It didn't bother me at all. But the guilt, the shame, is going to linger for a long time. Yom Kippur reminds us that the complete sacrifice dealt with both punishment and guilt. There were two goats. That's why the two goats together represented one sacrifice. One goat would die for our sins, shed his blood. The other would be taken out through the eastern gate to carry the guilt of those sins away forever. Have you noticed yet that Jesus did both? There's a moment that foreshadows Yom Kippur during Passover. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is about to be sacrificed. Two people face the crowd, Jesus and Barabbas. The crowd votes, place the death sentence on Jesus. He's the one to die. Barabbas set him free. He's the scapegoat. But setting Barabbas free did not remove the guilt. Those who crucified Jesus still dealt with guilt. It didn't work. Jesus had to do both for us. Jesus was not only sacrificed on the cross for our sins, not only did his blood cleanse us, but he was led out of the town through the eastern gate 
to be sacrificed. Hebrews 13.10, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You see, Jesus took the punishment and the guilt and took them on himself. Jesus carried our guilt with him to the cross, and many of us need to hear that today. He left all the guilt and shame there. He paid a heavy price so we could be free of the guilt of our past. Isaiah 53, 5, for he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's been put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Do you see it? He took the punishment, but he also is the offering for our guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus brings us peace because he pays not only the punishment for our sin, but he also is the sacrifice for the guilt of our sin. So many Christ followers failed to fully embrace what Jesus fully did on the cross. Maybe Yom Kippur could be your annual reminder that God doesn't do guilt for his children. Psalm 103.10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our sins. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43.25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Because of Jesus, your sins are forgiven, and don't miss this, forgotten. If God doesn't remember the sins that you've confessed, why do you? Let the day of atonement be your day to confess and be cleansed, a solemn and holy day of fasting and rest to allow God to cleanse you as you humbly confess and come in front of him. Too many of us live our lives as the scapegoat. We pick up all the guilt of our past, we go out into the wilderness and we wander by ourselves. We accept that Jesus was sacrificed for our sins, but we can't embrace that he's forgotten them. So since he's not reliving them, we decide to relive them. Satan comes in and puts wings or puts uh, wind in our sails. Yeah, keep doing that. Because as long as you're guilty over your past, you're never going to be in the moment. And you'll be ineffective for Christ. So you just wander in the wilderness, go on, make yourself feel bad, punish yourself, believe in Jesus, that's okay, just don't do anything that's effective. Don't change the world. Don't tell them why you have freedom. Like me at the principal's office, accepting the punishment, not able to shed the guilt, settling for a covering of some sort. What I really need is forgiveness and forgetness. The Day of Atonement reminds us that Jesus did not just atone for our sins. He didn't cover them up. He removed them. Think about this for a minute. The word atone, atoned, or atonement is never mentioned in the New Testament. Think about that. The New Testament has nothing to do with covering sins. The New Testament has to do with forgiveness of sins. 
And forgiveness is mentioned over 50 times in the New Testament. Let me close with this. The warning trumpet is going to sound. The feast of trumpets. It's our reminder that a day of judgment coming in 10 days. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, the shame and guilt you feel about your past was never going to go away. The punishment for your sins will never end. The warning trumpet will sound. We're required to respond to warnings. Spend this time thinking about Jesus, surrendering, accepting his blood, what he did on the cross to cover your sins and to remove them, to completely cleanse you of your sins. Realize that all those things that have been holding you hostage over your past for however many years, we're all screwed up. Get over it. But we don't settle for being covered because Jesus didn't die for something that simple. The blood that we just sang about is about him cleansing us from our sins, both the punishment and the guilt. Jesus said, I came to give you joy, give you a full life. You can't live your life if you're still living in the past. And you keep trying to forgive yourself, you can't forgive yourself. You're never told to. When you sin, you can only ask forgiveness from the offended party, that's God. For the rest of us, we need to use our time to think about that we're still here and we can still share the gospel. The 10 days of awe should remind us that there's a Jewish nation who needs to know Jesus. We need to remember the goats, but most of all, we need to remember Jesus because that's what this day is all about. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are so clear in your word. Our future is laid out for us. We don't know the date. We don't know exactly the time, but we know the events. We know where we want to be on that day. We know that you've never given up on the Jewish people. They're your people. You wanted to gather them together, and you promised that the Day of Atonement, that'll happen. Praise God that a third of the remaining Jewish nation will turn and see Jesus as Messiah. God, you initially came to your people, your nation. Thank you for grafting us in. But God, help us to never forget that this is all about a world mission. And then next week, we'll turn to the last feast, which is all about everybody coming together to celebrate, to live together, to celebrate what has happened. So God, between now and then, would you allow us to examine ourselves? Would you allow us to do whatever we have to do to realize that you took the guilt too? And any guilt, any condemnation that we're feeling is from Satan, not from you. God, you died so we wouldn't live like this. Help us to live the way you want us to live. For those who don't know you, God, I pray that you work in their hearts. Maybe they don't understand it, but something that we're talking about today just feels very true. So God, I pray that you would work in this room, move us to wherever you need to move us. I just feel like there is a huge amount of guilt in this room that needs to go away. Not go away into the wilderness, go away in you completely so we can live in the moment and celebrate what you really did on the cross. Many of us are only celebrating half of what you did. So God, we love you, we thank you. Thank you that you wrote in your word these feasts that point us to our future. Help us, God, to make sure that we are with you when the appointed times come. 
We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.